Good morning, BT. It, yeah, that's exactly right. It is just amazing to be worshiping our King. Amen. It is so powerful to be worshiping together. Um, just as uh, you know, me and my, my family are on the front row there uh, worshiping. To hear you all worshiping, it's just very powerful. To see you see us all coming together to worship our great God um, is just absolutely amazing. Church, would you help me in welcoming uh, those that are watching online today once again? Can we just welcome them today? If you're watching online, we're just so grateful that you're here and uh, uh, and a part of our worship experience this morning. To those of you that this might be your first time here at BT, I just want to echo the sentiments of Pastor Isado. Um, and just tell you how thrilled we are to be worshiping with you, that you, you are here today, whether you're watching online, whether you're here physically. This is one of your first times with us. I just want to encourage you again to text that word BTVIP to the number 97,000. It's going to give us a great opportunity to connect with you, to get to know you, and to be able to better serve you. And that's what we want to do here at BT Church. So hope and pray that you'll do that, and uh, hope and pray that we will see you again. Um, if you are, uh, uh, if this is one of your first times here at BT Church, I never take, I never assume that people know everything about BT, so I'll just tell you a little bit about us. As I mentioned, we have an online campus that's watching right now, but we have five physical campuses across South Texas that are gathered this very moment, worshiping the great God that we just sang to. going to open the same scriptures that we're going to open up here um, at our other campuses, and we're just excited about what God is doing across our church. Amen, church? It's a great time to be alive. It's a great time to live for King Jesus, as I mentioned, uh, not living for ourselves, but living for our King, amen? Um, as we sing, he has no rival, he has no equal. Um, there's no other name but his, amen? Uh, as we sing about our great God, as we think about our great God, as we open up the scriptures to learn about our great God, I would encourage you and I would ask you to think about this church, and would you agree with this statement that... Uh, our God is an amazing God of love. Would you agree with that, church? Amen. That God is a God of love? Praise God. Amen. Amen. Now, would you agree with this also, church, that our God is a God of judgment? Would you agree with that? Yeah, I got a yes. I didn't get as many amens on that one. But he's both, right? The great God we're singing to, he's a God of love, but he's a God of judgment. How many of y'all would say that God is a God of grace? How many of y'all know his amazing grace? Amen. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. But he loves us so much that he gives it to us anyway, amen? Thank God for that. But how many of y'all know that not only is God a God of grace, but he's a God of truth? He's a God of truth. He's both. He's grace and truth. See, a lot of people like to talk about God's love and God's grace, and we like to focus there. And that basically means I can do whatever I want because God's gracious and he'll forgive me. But God is also a God of truth and a God of judgment. And we live by his truth. We stand for his truth. We walk in his truth. And we know that all of us will face his judgment one day, both believers and non-believers. Believers will face the judgment seat of Christ, where we will be given our reward and uh, in that regard for how we live faithfully for our great God. And that reward will go right back to him. It's not ours. It goes to him. We live for him. Amen. Right? And non-believers will face what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. But we will all face the judgment of God in one way or another. Right? Um, and so as we talk about that today... Uh, I want to encourage you just to think about this, this truth, this idea that God is both God, a God of love and of grace, but he's a God of judgment and of truth. Why? Because as you walk with God, as you grow in your relationship with God, you're going to discover some things about God and you're going to understand his grace in greater ways. But you're also going to understand what happens if we choose to be unfaithful to God. 
If we choose to be rebellious towards God, we will face his judgment in one way or another. Make no mistake about that. There's a, that's a pattern that we see in Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, it's a pattern that we see over and over from God's people, in, uh, especially the Old Testament. We're going to be there this morning as we continue our series called Saints Together. We're talking about living in community and what that means, the power of living in community together. Fellow believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. What did we sing just a moment ago? We're united with one blood, right? The blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that makes us family, and we're meant to live this life together with fellow believers. We're not meant to walk the Christian life by ourselves. So that's what we've been talking about in this series called Saints Together, and it's going to be especially appropriate as we talk about today, because I, I want to point you to that cycle that people walk through with God, especially in the Old Testament. What I mean by this is God created for his glory a nation on this earth, his people, right? The Israelites, the Jews, and we read about them and study them in, in, in history and in the Old Testament. And we read about how God had a, 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 a special call and a special plan for his people. And our God is not an impersonal God. Our God is a relational God. Amen? Our God knows us and we know him. He wants to know us. He, he knows us completely and fully and, and we are growing in our knowledge of him. That's why we have the Bible. the Bible. One reason the Bible was given to us is to reveal God to us, that we would know him in greater ways, in more intimate ways, right? And so as we get to know our great God and as we get to serve our great God and we study the scriptures, we understand that as God's people in the Old Testament learned to live in relationship with him, that there was times of great prosperity and great, God was doing great things through his people as they were faithful and obedient to him. But unfortunately, we saw this cycle with God's people, with the Israelites, that they would be living in prosperity, they'd be living in great intimacy with their God and under, understanding how to relate to him and so on as he revealed himself to, uh, to them. But then they'd go on, on a pattern where they'd forget about God and they'd become disobedient to God and they'd rebel against God and when that would happen, God would allow them to fall under his judgment. And that brought dire consequences on them. And when consequences were brought upon his people, all of a sudden they'd remember God again in their agony. And they'd cry out to God for help and for salvation. And God in his great mercy would hear them and rescue them as God rescues. Amen. But unfortunately, what we see is that this pattern kept getting repeated. And God's people would be doing great. And God's people would forget about him, and God's people would get into trouble, and God's people would cry out to him, and the cycle would get repeated. It's an amazing thing to, 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 to study and to read about and to witness. But the funny thing about that is we can get so busy judging the Israelites in the Old Testament for going into that cycle when very often we tend to live that same cycle with God. We call ourselves believers, and we talk about surrender and surrender is wonderful when we're all gathered on a Sunday morning in church singing God's praises, but it's another thing to live surrender when we walk out those doors. And when we want to still control parts of our lives and we don't want to give over to God and we find ourselves in the same pattern that, man, I love growing in the Lord and I've never been more intimate with the Lord and my relationship is getting better with the Lord, but then I tend to forget about the Lord and I tend to rebel against the Lord and I tend to get disobedient against the Lord. I know I'm not talking about anybody else in here. Just talking about me. And I tend to forget about the Lord, and then all of a sudden I get in trouble, and all of a sudden I remember the Lord, and I'm crying out to the Lord again. And I'm saying things like, God, I know it's been forever since I've talked to you, and God, it's been forever since I've sought you, but I'm in trouble now, God, and I need you. 
And God in his infinite love and grace and mercy reminds me that his mercies are new every morning and he shows up and he rescues me again. And somewhere along the way, I promise that I won't disobey anymore and I won't rebel anymore, but I tend to fall into that same pattern. It's amazing how we can judge the Israelites for doing it, but we don't see it when we do it. Isn't that something? That's what we're going to talk about today. If you've got your Bibles with you, I want to ask you to open to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Prophet Daniel, the book of of great prophecy. We're going to start, we're going to be, we're going to camp out today in Daniel 3, the third chapter, but we're actually going to start in Daniel 1 because I want to give you a little bit of background to the story. The Israelites here are in a dark period, in a dark time, and they're under what is known as the Babylonian captivity. And you say, well, uh, I hear, you know, freaky words like that, fancy words like that, Pastor Louis, and what is all that talking about? Babylonian captivity is simply a period of history in, in, in the, for the Israelites in which they rebelled and disobeyed against God, and it was so bad that God allowed Jerusalem to be overrun by Babylon, by King Nebuchadnezzar. And what happened was when King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem, this is what is known as the, as the great Babylonian captivity or exile, where the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem. They were spread out, and they were basically... Many of them were wiped out and killed, but those that survived were taken as slaves back to Babylon. And they were removed from their homeland, they were removed from their families, and they were taken into a captivity for 70 years, the Bible teaches us. For 70 years. And in the midst of those 70 years, as they were in that captivity, this happened because they were under God's judgment. But even when they were under God's judgment, God sent word to them through prophets for them to remain faithful that he knew the plans he had for them, and that eventually he would rescue them and restore them again. But they would undergo that captivity because of their disobedience and their rebellion. Sometimes we feel that way. Sometimes we feel like we've been captive, and sometimes God allows that simply because we've forgotten about him. But God is gracious, and God never forgets us, and God rescues us. Amen? And so this is happening, and King Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem. He overtakes it. He wipes out a lot of the people, but he takes some of the best of the best that Jerusalem had to offer back with him to Babylon. And that's where we pick it up in Daniel chapter 1. Let's read a little bit about what happened in this moment during the Babylonian captivity. They have come. They've sacked Jerusalem. They've taken, uh, they've, they've, they've wiped out the people there. And now all of a sudden the king gives orders to one of his chief eunuchs. And this is where we pick it up in Daniel 1 verse 3. Verse 3, this is what the Bible says. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. So if you get the picture so far, they've sacked Jerusalem, they've overtaken it, they've wiped most of the people out, but they have taken some of the best young people without any defect, wisdom, smart, and they've been taken to Babylon where they're going to be trained for three years to serve the king. They're either going to serve the king in his palace where he's at or in some of the provinces that the king oversees, and that's where we pick it up here um, in verse 5. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of the time, they, they were to attend the king. Among them, verse 6, 
from the Judites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave, them the, na- he gave the name Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So I, I'm trying to paint a picture for you here of where we're going to be in Daniel 3. That these young Jewish boys have been taken into slavery. They've become slaves. They've been taken from their homeland. They've been taken from their families. They've been taken far away from everything they've ever known. They're placed in a foreign land with a foreign culture and a foreign language with a foreign king where they will be retrained to serve him. They will be taught a new language. They will be taught new customs. They will be taught new traditions. And they will be taught how to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. Not only has their everything, their reality been changed, but even their names have been changed. They will no longer go by their Hebrew names. They will go now by their new Chaldean names, if you will, by, by the, the, this new uh, kingdom that they'll be a part of, the kingdom of Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody with me so far? All right. So we're going to fast forward a little bit down the road. Some years have gone by. They've been trained. And now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been placed over a province. And this is where we pick it up in Daniel 3. Go with me to Daniel chapter 3, if you will. And I want you to understand what is taking place here. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, na- were, were named by the king to manage the province of Babylon. All right, this is where we talk about the kingdom of Babylon. And so they're placed basically as governors there. And there comes a day that the king does something new and he erects a golden statue 90 feet tall. 90 feet tall, this golden statue possibly made in his image, but if, even if it wasn't in his image, it was for his glory, for the king's glory. And there's a day that they call everybody together in the province, and especially they bring all the government officials, all the governors, and and all these different officials, right? And they bring all the people together, and they make an announcement. And the king makes a decree, basically, and a king's decree is is law, and you are not to break the law. And he declares that any time there's a musical instrument played, and he names all these different instruments, drums, horns, all these different things. Anytime there's a musical instrument that is played at that moment, you have to stop whatever you're doing and you must bow in worship to this image of gold that has been made. This 90-foot image that everybody could see. Whatever it was that you were doing, you had to stop what you were doing when you heard the musical instruments and you had to bow before this image of gold that was basically made for the glory of this king. And basically what the king was saying, I want to remind everybody here that your life is in my hands. I want to remind everybody here that I am in absolute control, in absolute power. I am the sovereign of this place, and what I say goes. So whenever you hear those instruments, you better bow. And if you don't bow, if you choose to be defiant and you don't bow, you will be thrown into a fiery furnace, and it will cost you your life. Well, everybody got the picture, and they said, we're going to go ahead and do a trial run. And uh, they said, ready? And, And so basically... Uh, The instruments were played, and the horns were blown, and everybody bowed, and the king was happy, and everything seemed to be really good, except out of all the government officials and all the people that were gathered, there were certain people that chose not to bow. And that's what we're going to talk about, because I want to talk to you about today what it looks like when saints are together, when saints stand together in a culture that is ungodly. When saints stand together in a culture that is oppressive to their beliefs, that teaches them to live for themselves, that teaches them that you are your own God and chase whatever you want, 
Because life is about your pleasure and your fulfillment and your glory. So live for yourself rather than living for something greater than yourself. Rather than living for someone greater than yourself. Uh, By the way, we declared that already. His name is Jesus. Amen. That's who we live for. And we live for his glory, not our own. So what does it look like for saints to stand together and declare that in a culture that says, do anything but that? Live for yourself. Live for any other God that you want except that one God. Because let's face it, you can even talk about God in general, and we're cool with that. Just don't bring up the name Jesus. Because it's the name Jesus that sets people off. It's the name Jesus that makes people uncomfortable. It's the name Jesus you can't be a fence rider about. You can't sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. you got to pick a side. Guess what? That's the way Jesus wants it. That's the way Jesus likes it. He says, I don't want you to be lukewarm about me. I don't want you to be lukewarm. I want you to be hot or cold, right? If you're lukewarm, I'm fixing to vomit you out of my mouth. That's what Jesus told the church in Revelation who was lukewarm about him. Man, be hot, be cold, but don't be lukewarm. You can't be lukewarm about Jesus. You can't sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. You got to take a stand when it comes to Jesus. You got to make a choice when it comes to Jesus. You're going to be hot or cold when it comes to Jesus. You're going to surrender and bow the knee to Jesus, or you're going to keep bowing the knee to yourself. It's going to be one or the other, but you will make a choice in this life. Make no mistake about it. And to not choose Jesus is to make a choice. You've chosen your own way. That's simply how it works. And so we see here that the people of the province are are given this command, and all of a sudden, the king gets some news. Hey, king, when we did that trial run, there were some people that didn't bow. As a matter of fact, let's pick it up right there. In Daniel 3, starting in verse 8, we're going to read all the way to verse 15. We're going to end up reading through the chapter, but i got to cut it up in chunks, because if I read through the whole passage, I'll never get to the message. I'll just kind of comment on on the passage itself, and we'll never get anywhere. So let's read 8 through 15, all right? This is what the Bible says took place after they had their trial run and after the people vowed, some people went to the king and told him this. Verse 8, some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree, a law, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Well, king, it's not our place to say, but we thought you'd like to know. Verse 12, there are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon. Remember those guys? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, these men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Look, I've just heard something that I can't believe. And, and, and normally, I wouldn't even bring you in for a second chance, but I happen to like you guys. Because everything you seem to do gets blessed. Everything you do gets blessed for some reason. I don't know. So I like you guys. So I'm going to give you a second chance. He says, look, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, 
you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? <laughs> There's some really dumb things that are said in the Bible. There's some really good questions in the Bible. This is not one of them. This is a really dumb one. And which God is going to be able to save you from my power? Because I'm sovereign. And I'm in control. And I run this thing. And I'm king here. And if you don't do what I say, as much as I like you three guys, I am going to throw you in the fire. Make no mistake about it. I keep my word. And if I need to make an example of you guys so that everybody else falls in line, I'll gladly make an example of you guys. But I'm going to give you a second chance. So when the music goes... This is your chance. Bow down before that image of gold. Understand something, church. As we learn truths about saints together living in confidence in an ungodly culture, I want you to get the first thing that we need to understand here. Saints together stand confident when they're called out. Saints together stand confident when they're called out. And that's why we need each other. Because we're going to help each other stand strong. We're going to encourage each other. We're going to support one another. And we can do that much better together than we can by ourselves. Amen? Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? The wisest man who ever lived wrote that book, Solomon. And what did he say? Very simple concept. Two are better than one. Duh. That makes a lot of sense. You better believe it makes a lot of sense. Two are better than one. If you got something heavy to carry, isn't it better to have somebody help you carry it? Praise God. Thank God for that. If you gotta, if you got to fight somebody, don't you want somebody watching your back? Huh? Two are better than one, right? We get more and more more uh, reward for what we do and so on, right? What's well, the same principle here? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to stand together in the face of an ungodly culture. And saints stand together when they're called out. And we live in a culture, make no mistake about it, church, that is going to call us out for our faith. We live in a culture that's constantly going to challenge our faith. We live in a culture that's going to call us out for standing for Jesus. And here's the thing that we got to decide when that moment happens are we going to stand strong or are we going to run and hide? All of us will face a moment in our lives where fear creeps in. Our culture naturally will demand that of us as Christians. When you take a stand for Jesus, people are going to get upset. When you take a stand for Jesus, family is going to get upset. When you, get upset, when you, when you take a stand for Jesus, the culture is going to be upset and you're going to get called out. But the key is what are you going to do when you get called out? How are you going to react? Are you taking time to build an intimate walk with God so that when it happens, it, it's not more reactionary, but you already knew it was coming and you know how you're going to stand before it even happens? Are you hearing me, church? Or are you taking no time to walk with God, no time to learn from God, no time to hear from God, so then when you are called out, it is going to be reactionary and you have no idea how you're going to react because you haven't been taking time to build your walk and build your relationship with the one you claim to be your king. But all along, it seems that you're really the king or the queen, and it's just lip service talking about how you love the king of kings. I can say that because I did that for five years of my Christian walk. Five years. I claimed Jesus, but nothing in my life would have showed you that I lived for Jesus because I never got discipled. I never got connected in community. And it wasn't until five years after I got saved that I got connected in community that I started to understand it's a lot better to take a stand with others around me who believe the same things, who I'm building my life with, who are encouraging me, and I can encourage them, and we can encourage each other. And with Jesus, we can stand for anything. And we can stand on him and his promises. Amen? 
That's what happens here, and we see this in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The opportunities to obey God are times when we get to prove our confidence in our great God. As I mentioned to you, whether it's culture or or anything within that culture, there's going to be times that we're called out for our faith, and immediately one of the first things we're going to feel, we're going to run to is fear. We're going to run to is, man, what do I do with this? How do I handle this? I thought I could handle this, but man, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And that's why I love the words that the Apostle Paul told to his apprentice, Timothy. In one of the letters that he wrote to his apprentice, he wrote these words to him. He knew his time to leave, uh, to leave this earth was, was, getting, was at hand, but he knew that Timothy was going on to do great things. Timothy would go on to be a great pastor, and he reminded Timothy of something. He says, Timothy, as you stand for the gospel, what did he tell Timothy? Preach the gospel in season and out of season. Always be prepared and and preach the gospel, Timothy, but understand when you do, people are going to come against you, and when they do, you're going to have an opportunity for fear. But let me remind you of something, Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's not given us a spirit of timidity, but he's given us a spirit of power and of love and of sound mind, and of sound mind. So that, again, when I'm hit and culture wants to come at me and I've got to take a stand Instead of running and hiding, instead of giving in to fear, I'm going to remember God's promises. I'm going to remember God's presence that is with me. And I'm going to have a sound mind about me to know how to react when I'm called out. And that's exactly what we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're called out and the king threatens them. And he says, who's going to be able to save you from my hand? Do you not know that I hold your lives in the palm of my hand? And they're getting ready to school the king on something, right? Because the king mistakenly believes, I hold your lives in the palm of my hand. That's what all false cultures and false kings have tried to make sure that they impress upon people. I hold my life in your hands, whether it was King Nebuchadnezzar and a fiery furnace, or it's the Roman emperor at a Colosseum, thumbs up or thumbs down. Why would he do that? Because I hold your life in my hands, and I want to remind you of that, right? And that's how kings would threaten they threaten, you better do what I say because I, I got the power of your life in my hands. And it's an amazing thing that would discover that faithful worship will often be an act of defiance, can often be an act of defiance. If you're going to be faithful to your God, sometimes it's going to require that you're defiant somewhere else. Sometimes it's going to require that you're defiant in your government or in your culture or in your workplace or in your family sometimes. It's going to require that you're defiant because you're called to make a choice. It's Jesus or something else. Jesus or something else. And you come to the point that you're going to decide, I'm either going to stand for Christ or I'm not. What do I do? I'm going to stand for Christ or I'm not. See, I wonder a lot about what Christians are going to do in America if and when the day comes that our religious liberties are taken away. See, religious liberty is something you and I have grown up with. Religious liberty is something you and I believe in. As Christians, as members of this church, we believe in religious liberty, not just for Christians, but for anybody in America. We're free to worship, right? We believe in the concept of religious liberty. Nobody can tell us how to worship, and we can't tell anybody how to worship. And we can gather here on a Sunday morning with the freedom to know that we can worship our great God without fear of any government officials or anybody else busting down those doors with guns, threatening our lives because we've chosen to worship Jesus this morning. But what's going to happen on the day that that's not a reality? What's going to happen on the day that the laws do change? What's going to happen on the day that our religious liberties are taken away? Are we going to cower and go with culture, or are we going to stand strong for Christ? What's our decision going to be? 
We say, well, you know what, Pastor Louie, it's true. We've never grown up with that. I haven't grown up with that. I don't think that'll happen in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime, but it might happen sometime. You know how I know that? Because there's Christians all around the world that that's their reality today. We're blessed in America. We're blessed to be here to be worshiping the way we are. We're blessed to be in the great state of Texas. Praise God. Amen. Amen. We're blessed. But not everybody can say that. And there's Christians who are gathering on this Lord's day with the very threat of their lives if they're discovered all around the world, taking a stand for Christ in a culture that says, you better bow before this golden image. You better bow before the emperor or the king or whoever it might be before the government or it will cost you your life or we'll throw you in jail. And how many of our brothers and sisters right now are suffering in prisons all around the world simply because of the fact that they have chosen to stand for Jesus Christ? But you know what? If and when we're called to do that, whenever we're called to do that, we can do that because we can do it together, but we can do it in his power and in his presence. Amen? Amen. He'll give us the ability to do so, and that's a choice we'll have to make. As the story goes on, they're given the opportunity. Look at how they answer. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. Boom, right, right there, that would have cost them their life. Just for the way they answered the king. We don't need to give you an answer to what you've just asked us. What did he ask them? And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? We don't need to give you an answer to this question. We're fixing to show you. Look at what they go on to say. If the God we, if, if the God we serve exists then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Now, understand something, church. You and I are on this side of history, and we know the rest of the story. You can go to the end of Daniel 3 right now and find out how the story ended. We'll get there eventually. Well, you're preaching, Pastor Lewis. It's going to be a while. Yeah, it's going to be a while, but we'll get there. <laughs> Understand that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uttered these words, they didn't know the rest of the story. They didn't know how it was going to play out. They didn't know whether the king was going to keep his word. They didn't know if their God was going to show up or not. But here's what they did know. They didn't need their God to show up in the fiery furnace or not because he had already showed up in their lives and they knew he was real and they knew he existed and they trusted in his character more than they trusted in their own lives. They totally depended on him. This is a total act of faith. Look, we're trusting that our God will show up if you throw us in the fire. But even if he doesn't, you need to know we're not going to bow before your image of gold. We're not going to bow before you. We've already chosen who we bow before, and it's not you, king. It's the king of kings. That's who we bow before. Amen? But just think of this reality. These are three young teenagers being threatened with their life, and they've got each other at least in that moment, and they can encourage each other, and they can be there for each other, and the Bible didn't tell us if one of them wanted to take off. If one of them wanted to, to duck tail and run, if one of them wanted to bow. But it does say that the three of them stood together. It does say that the three of them had each other as they had God. And that they were able to lean on each other in that moment. Because I want us to understand that the next great thing we see in this passage is that saints together stand confident in God's character. And that's what they were basing their hope on, in God's character. 
They knew the character of their God. They knew the promises of their God. And they knew that no matter what happened, ultimately they were going to be fine because they knew whom they had trusted in. And that's where you and I are. Understand that this is a test of faith here. This wasn't about arrogance. This was about faithfulness. They weren't trying to be arrogant to the king. They were minding their own business. They weren't making a public a spectacle of not bowing before the image of gold. If, if people were going to bow, that was up to them. They didn't bow, but they kept quiet about it. It was only until those other guys went to the king and said, hey, there's three guys that didn't bow. And they were called out, and that's when they decided to stand. But they weren't being arrogant. They were being faithful. They weren't being arrogant. They were being faithful. There's a difference between the two. Their confidence was in the right place. It was not in themselves. It was in their character. Understand that that's what your Christian life is all about. It's not about building your self-confidence. It's not that you'll become a greater you and, and you'll have all this confidence in yourself. It's so that you'll place your confidence in the right place, your great God. That's where your confidence should be. He's the one who fights your battles. Amen? Isn't there scripture somewhere, somewhere in the Bible that says the battle is the Lord's? Do you ever read in scripture where it says the battle is yours? That it's your responsibility to fight the battle? No, you're called to put on your armor. You're in God's army, but it's his army and you fight behind him. He fights. I've always said that. I'm blown away at people that want to take on all, you know, Satan and demons and this and that. Why would you want to do that when Jesus said he's already given you the victory? Let Jesus fight your battles for you, man. I'm the, I'm, I'm the punk hiding behind Jesus. Like, yeah, what did you say? You know, talk to him. He's, he's the one that's going to take care of it, not me. I'm hiding behind him. I'm going to hide behind Jesus. He's the one that I'm going to follow. See, this was true faith. They were not testing God. They were relying on God. The Bible says don't put the Lord your God to the test. And they weren't testing God. They were relying on him. There's a difference. They were under a test, but they weren't trying to test God. God was actually testing them. This was a test of faith, folks. And tests of faith will come in our lives. We will have tests of faith. And here's the thing I like about tests. Uh, here's the thing I know about tests. Nobody likes them. Nobody likes tests, right? Well, teachers do. No, not even teachers like tests, really. I mean, no, nobody likes tests. The type of tests that we're talking about here. See, as a Christian, it's not a matter of if you'll undergo a test. It's just a matter of when you'll undergo a test. I don't like saying that, and you don't like hearing it, but it's true. It's just a matter of when you'll undergo a test, because unfortunately, there's a false gospel out there that many churches are preaching, that once you come to Jesus, everything's going to be perfect, and you'll never have troubles again. That is simply not true. That is simply not biblical. The rest of your life on this earth as a Christian doesn't mean that you won't have any troubles. It means you know where to go when you have troubles. It means you have a strong tower. The righteous run to him and they are safe when you have those troubles. There will come tests in our lives, but tests are okay because tests are designed for, for one reason. This is something I shared in the first service. All teachers know this. All teachers who prepare tests. Tests are designed for us to pass, folks. Tests are designed for us to pass, to succeed. That's why tests come from the Lord. That's why you can know when you're undergoing a test that God's giving you enough power to be able to overcome it if you'll look to him. That's what the test is all about. Where are you going to run when it's test time? Are you going to trust in yourself? Are you going to trust in somebody else? Or are you going to look to Jesus? That's all the test is right there. And, and tests come in different forms. But a test is designed for you to pass. 
A temptation is designed for you to fail. That comes from the evil one. That comes from the enemy. Don't confuse a temptation with a test. Those are two different things. A test is designed for you to pass. A temptation is designed for you to fail. Your enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to see you fall. That's why he's going to tempt you. See, a test usually brings, brings strain. A temptation usually doesn't bring that type of strain. Temptation is usually deciding between a good thing and what seems better to you, what the enemy has painted as better to you. Can I preach to you a little bit this morning, church? Huh? See, the temptation at first doesn't feel like a test at all. It feels like something good. That's what makes it a temptation. But it's only until you've taken the bait and the master fisherman pulls on the line and you realize you're hooked. And he's got you mounted up on the wall next to his other trophy. Because he got another life he took out. Because you took the bait and you took the temptation. Temptations are designed for you to fall. Temptations are designed to be mounted on the wall as a trophy for your enemy. Tests are designed for you to pass. This was a test that God had for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In a culture that everything is foreign to you, in a culture that screams everything different than what you've been taught, will you stand strong for who you know you have believed in? Will you stand strong for who you know his promises? Will you stand strong for the one who has promised that as he watches over you, he will never slumber or sleep, that he will be your shade at your right hand, and the sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night? That's what Jesus has promised for you. He has promised, not that you're not going to have troubles, but what did, he, what did he say? In this world, you will have troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You know what that phrase, take heart, means? It means have courage. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Have courage. You know in whom you've believed. You know that he's real. You know that he's more real than the air that you breathe and the water that you drink and the food that you eat. He's the most real thing in your life. So why would you doubt in the moment of the test? Tests are designed for you to pass, folks. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your faith in Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith, and he is perfecting your faith. Guess what he was doing in this moment to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He was perfecting their faith. So, King, you do what you want to us, but I can guarantee you when you blow those horns, we are not going to bow. And if our God chooses to rescue us, praise God. And if our God chooses not to rescue us and take us home to be with him, praise God. Either way, God will be praised. Either way, God will be glorified. And that's enough. And if he's not enough for you and that's not enough, then I would seriously encourage you to do some inventory about your relationship with God. Because it could be you're just looking to him for what he can give you or bless you with or how he can take care of you, but the moment he doesn't, you're going to bolt on him. You really call that faith? You really call that walking with him? You really call that trusting him? Trust and obey, right? For there's no other way to live with Jesus than to trust and obey. But the moment things get tough, the moment things get rough, the moment you don't get your way, you bolt. Then you realize that God was never your God, but he was really a genie in a bottle, and you wanted your three wishes granted. And it doesn't work that way. That's not who God is. God says... I'm refining you. And sometimes to refine you, I got to put you in the fire. But you know what fire does to things of quality? It makes them better. It purifies them. You know what fire does to things that are no good? It destroys them. Right? If we're in Jesus, he's building something of quality. 
So when we go through the refiner's fire, guess what's going to happen? We're going to be purified. We're going to be made more into his image and his likeness. And we're going to be more like our king. Come whatever might may, whatever may. And that is enough. That is enough. See, in the end, if it came to it, they preferred death over being unfaithful to their God. I'm telling you, when you get to that point in your walk with God, you know that you're growing in your faith. God, would you take me home before I am ever unfaithful to you? God, would you call me home? Would you take me out? Take me out of this world before I ever am unfaithful to you? That's the choice that those three teenagers made on that day. We'd rather face death than to be unfaithful to our God. So go ahead and blow the horns, king. Go ahead and pound the drum, king. We're not going to bow. And we're going to trust our God no matter what. And look at what happens. Let's continue here. After they tell him, know that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar realized how amazing their faith was and he commended them and he commanded that the fire be put away. No, that's not what the Bible says. Follow along. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and the expression on his faith changed on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we talk about the countenance, the countenance of, of your face. So when, when, when we pray to leave here, we talk about God's countenance being on you. May his favor be on you and his countenance go towards you, right? That, that God's expression, you would know his love and his grace and his mercy. People can tell a lot about us by the countenance of our face. Amen? All right? Let me, let me speak to the, the teenagers in here. You know a lot about how your parents are doing by the countenance of of their faith, face, amen. When when you're when you're doing some right things and you're obeying and you're honoring your parents, man, the countenance is nice. When you choose to disobey and rebel and so on, we look a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. We get enraged, right? Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed toward them. He favored them. He liked them. They they did good for him. That's why he gave them a second chance. When he gives them the second chance and they deny him. That's when he changes towards them. His countenance changed, and he became enraged. He says, how dare you defy me? Look at what he goes on to tell them. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of his best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. So the king is so enraged, he orders the fire to be seven times hotter than normal, so bad that the guards who threw the three guys in were killed themselves. And the Bible says they were bound up so tight that they were thrown into the fire that they fell into the fire bound, right? They couldn't control, they couldn't walk, so they fell into the fire bound. It's an amazing thing that is happening here. They held their ground, they took their stand, and the king backed up his words too. And what I want us to understand here is that saints together stand confident in God's standard. Saints together stand confident in God's standard no matter the cost. Come what may, I will not be moved. On Christ the solid rock I stand because all other ground is sinking sand. 
And it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what comes. I will not be moved from this rock. I will not be moved from the rock of my salvation. Saints together stand confident in God's standard no matter what. And so we read that they fell into the fire. And it takes us to the next part. Look at verses 24 and 25. This is good. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped, in alar- jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, hey guys, come here. Didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Well, yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. Well, he exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. What is going on here? The king literally starts to lose his mind. Now, if you go on and read about King Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, you understand he did lose his mind eventually. He literally did lose his mind, but he starts to lose his mind here. He says, what's going on? Didn't we throw three of them bound? They were tied up. You guys tied them up? No, the guys that were killed tied them up, but we saw that they tied them up pretty good, and they fell into the fire. They were bound. Well, how come I see not only three, but I see four, and they're walking around like they're having a party in the fire. What's going on? Didn't I order it seven times hotter? How is it that they're alive in there? We don't know. I don't know how that happened. And what we need to understand here is that saints together stand confident with God's presence. We stand confident with God's presence even when we're in the fire. We stand confident with God's presence. Now, biblical scholars debate. The king here uses the term, the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, if you study that term, son of the gods, in scripture, you understand it can mean one of two things. The term son of the gods is usually reserved for angels, right? So it could be that an angel was sent a guardian angel, to protect them while they were in the fire. But the term son of the gods can also refer to a pre-incarnate form of Jesus. Pre-incarnate, what does that mean? It means before Jesus became flesh, when we celebrated Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, that Jesus appeared in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like many people believe, Jesus appeared to Abraham to tell him he was going to have a son. And so on. It was the son of the gods, right? Whether it was Jesus or whether it was an angel, they did find divine rescue. And that's what matters most. Amen. In their moment of greatest need, when they took a stand, they found divine rescue. Now, before I go off and say something preachery, like when you're willing to go in the fire for God, he's willing to go in there with you and so on. And that's the truth of this story. We know that not all stories in scripture end this way. Because what was their faith statement? We know that if you throw us into the fire, our God will show up and deliver us. That's not what they said. They said he might do that. But he might decide not to show up, and we might die, and that's okay too, because ultimately God's got us, right? That's the statement of faith, because does God always show up in Scripture? Does God always show up the way people were hoping? Let me put it that way. No, not always. We know that. Or can I remind you of someone named John the Baptist, a man of whom Scripture says there was no one like him born of a woman, a man who knew his purpose who knew it was his purpose to declare the way of the Lord, and that's exactly what he did, who pointed to Jesus, but who was ultimately thrown in jail. Why? For speaking truth to a king. He spoke truth to a king, and it would cost him his life. He was thrown in jail. When he was in jail, he sent word to Jesus, and he said, hey, hey, uh, can you tell me if you're the one, if you're the Messiah? Because I, I think you are, but can you tell me if you are? Because I've been in this prison cell for a little bit, and if you're the guy, you would know about it, and you would have already gotten me out of here. 
Jesus sent word back to John the Baptist. And what did he say? Tell John this. The blind can see and the deaf can hear and the sick are healed and miracles and wonders are taking place. What was Jesus telling John the Baptist? I am the Messiah. I am the guy. But I'm not going to open your prison cell. As a matter of fact, your head is going to be on the chopping block and it's going to be served on the very platter to the king that you offended. And that's exactly what happened to John the Baptist. He was beheaded and his head was put on a platter and it was presented to the king that he had offended. Did God not come to his rescue? You better believe God came to his rescue. Because John the Baptist knew whether he was delivered from that prison or not, ultimately he was going to be just fine. And ultimately he was just fine because he's reigning in glory with his king. That's what matters. That's what matters most. Or do we not mean it when we say, I surrender all? Do we not mean it when we sing, I surrender all? Maybe we should change the words next time we sing that song. On the screen here, we'll talk to our production team and say, I surrender 99%. Or I surrender 75%. Or I surrender 50%. That's not the Christian life, folks. You want to know what the Christian life is? Jesus defined it like this. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. You know what it means to take up your cross? It means that you die to yourself every day and you live for him. So whether it's a physical death or whether it's death to your selfishness, what's the difference? Ultimately, you're going to reign with Jesus. You're going to be with Jesus. and You can trust in his promises. Ultimately, everything's going to be fine because of Christ for his glory and his purposes. Are you all with me, church? I feel like I've lost you a little bit. huh? I feel like you're not as excited as you were at the beginning. Man, Louie, I thought this story was going to be uplifting. You're supposed to tell me how good I am and how, how God loves me and, and he's got nothing but the best plan for me. What if it is his plan for us to go into the fire or to go into the prison or to give our life for our faith? People do that. Christians are doing that every day. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What, is that wonderful, what if that wonderful plan is to be fed to the lions? Does that mean God is not sovereign? Does that mean God is not in control? Does that mean that God does not love you? Of course not. Now you're growing in your faith. Now you're learning what it means to be a Christian. Now you're learning what it means not just to pay lip service to following Jesus. So that being a church member or being a Christian is something you can put on a resume or an application or something. That's not what it's about. It's about living for Jesus and dying to yourself. That's all it is. The simplest definition I know of discipleship came from John the Baptist. John 3.30. The purpose of your life every day? He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were learning that lesson. Because ultimately, when the king realized there was four people in there, you know what he did? He called them out. He called them out in a different way. He called them out of the fire, literally. And look at how the story ends. He says here, Nebuchadnezzar approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God. Whoa, whoa, did you hear what he called God? You servants of the Most High God. I, a little while ago, I told you that I was the Most High God, that you needed to bow before that image of gold. I've discovered there's another God greater than me. You know that that's one of the greatest days in your life, believer? When the realization hits you that you're not in total control and don't have total power to solve every problem and you got to get on your knees before Jesus because that's the greatest place you can be. 
That's the strongest position you can be in. Not to think that you can handle all your problems, and if you can't handle them, then you go to God, but to go to God in the first place and give it to him in the first place and bow before your king, bow before Jesus as you live your life. He called him out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and when the satraps, prefects, governors, and king's advisors gathered around them, they saw that the fire had no effect on their bodies, not a hair on their heads was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, may they be torn limb from limb and his house made into a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. God sent the king his own answer to his own question. Can I take you back to verse 15? And what did the king ask in verse 15? And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. When saints together stand strong in the face of an oppressive culture, we will make an impact on those who are watching around us. And that's exactly what happened here. The people were in awe. The people were with their jaws on their floor because God did something amazing again. And they realized there's somebody greater than King Nebuchadnezzar. There's somebody bigger than that 90-foot statue of gold. And it's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is your life bringing glory to him? Is your life pointing people to him? Is your life showing that you're willing to stand on him no matter what? And no matter what it might cost you. Man, it's amazing, Pastor Louis, how all that worked out. What a coincidence. Man, how all those things just played out together. And King Nebuchadnezzar and the people around there realized that there is a God in heaven who reigns and rules. What a coincidence. Again, you, you know why I've said that question twice? Because there's no such thing as coincidence, church. You think this took God by surprise? Do you really think there's anything that takes God by surprise? Do you know that God never says, uh-oh? You know that nothing ever freaks God out? Because God is sovereign and God is in control. How do we know that this wasn't just coincidence? Well, how did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come to be appointed as governors of the province of Babylon. Does anybody know? Why don't you go to Daniel 2, 49, the last verse right before Daniel 3. Why did the king appoint Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as governors of Babylon? Whose idea was it? Who mentioned it to the king? It was that fourth guy that had been chosen to stay in the king's court. The, the guy named Daniel? He mentioned it to the king. Hey, king, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they probably make pretty good governors of Babylon. And the king said, you know what? That's a good idea. I think I'll appoint them as governors of Babylon. 
You don't think God knew that the king was going to build a 90-foot statue? You don't think God knew that he was going to throw his three precious possessions into the fire? You don't think God knew what he was going to do once they were thrown into the fire? You don't think God knew what the king was going to utter from his lips? There's no God who can deliver like the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, when the saints together stay together and stick together and encourage one another, it's impossible what God can do. It's amazing what God can do through us. So what are you going to do? Where are you going to choose to be? Where are you going to choose to stay? Where are you going to choose to live? On your own? In your own power? Or at the feet of Jesus? Sometimes God needs to let things happen in your life so you'll finally recognize that you got no place to look but to him. Sometimes God will let things happen in your life so you get to the point that for the first time you're willing to get on your knees and call out to Jesus. I've shared this many times with you all before. This is nothing new. One of the greatest days in the life of a believer is when you realize the two great truths. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not him. Which means you recognize that you need him. And you need to bow before him. Friday night, we had a worship night. If you missed it, you missed it. It was awesome. It was powerful. And I don't know why I didn't think it wouldn't be. Every time we gather to worship Jesus, it's powerful. And it was a bilingual worship night, so we sang songs in our two languages. People are watching, well, what what do you mean your two languages? Bilingual, it could be anything. Well, we're from the South Texas, and we're from the Valley, so that's English and Spanish, Right? And so we just went from one song to another, and during the songs, we'd go from English to Spanish, Spanish to English, just crying out to our God, singing out to our God. And the band played a song I'd never heard before, and I love when that happens. And I love when the words that are on the screen are no longer words on the screen, but they become the very essence of who we are in the cry of our heart. And we began to sing this song, and they began to sing about being at the feet of Jesus and the song was okay and it was good and it was building but when we got to the chorus that's what got me and I haven't been able to shake it since Friday night and I downloaded the song almost immediately when we left and I was doing some chores yesterday before I was getting ready to watch my horns and as I was doing my chores I was listening on my headphones and I was just had that song on repeat I'd never heard it before and as we sang it and we, we sang the chorus, this is what the words of the chorus said. The words of the chorus, we sang it like this. No hay lugar más alto, más grande que estar a tus pies. And for those of you who don't speak the heavenly language yet, I'm going to translate, okay? And, and I, I said yet because in heaven you'll understand it and speak it and fluently and all that great stuff, praise God. I'm looking forward to that day too because I don't speak it fluently. I don't. I can understand it, but I don't speak it as, as, as well as I'd like to. But what the chorus was saying was this. There's no higher place. There's no greater place that I could ever be than to be at your feet than to bow at the feet of Jesus. That's the greatest place you could ever be. 
That's the strongest place you could ever be. That is where you need to live. That is where I need to live at the feet of Jesus, bowed to my king. In order to see God, in order to see Jesus, we must bow. That's straight from Scripture. We'll either bow willingly or we'll be made to bow. But all of us will bow before Jesus. There's no greater place, there's no higher place than to kneel at the feet of Jesus. And that's what we're called to do, church. That's what we're called to do. And when we do that together, we will be a witness to the world of the life-changing power of our great God. And the enemies and the culture and the people in your very family, in your workplace that make fun of you for being a Christian, the people who have said no and no to you when you've invited them to something at church, are going to recognize that there's no other God that's able to save other than Jesus Christ. That there's no other God that's able to heal other than Jesus Christ. That there's no other God that's worthy of our worship and worthy of our lives and worthy of our hearts other than Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, church? Let's stand together and let's go to our great God. I don't know if you're building up the kind of faith that when you're called to be thrown into the fire, you would willingly take your stand. Or I don't know that if you would do some honest inventory this morning and say, you know what, Pastor Louis, if I'm being really honest, if I was presented with that choice, I might hightail it and run. Because my faith is more reactive right now than it is proactive. Then I'd encourage you to build your walk with Jesus. Where does your walk begin? Where does it stay? And where does it end? with you kneeling at the feet of Jesus. That's where it is. That's where the power is. That's where the purpose is. That's where life is. When you kneel at the feet of Jesus, there's no better place to be. That's your position of strength, believer. Are you hearing me? Now imagine that when we're all doing that together. You can't contain that. You can't stop that. Jesus talked about that type of power. It's dunamis dynamite, explosive and people can't help but recognize and they'll have to take their stand on whether Jesus is king or not but do you know him? this whole series is about living in community, do you know him? one of the greatest ways you'll experience him is through community through other believers encouraging you and sharpening you making you better, are you living in community? I want to encourage you don't think of your church existence as walking in on a Sunday morning, saying hi to a couple faces, then walking out until next Sunday. That is not church. Church is about being connected. It's about being a family. It's about going through life together. I want to kneel at the feet of Jesus with other people who are kneeling at the feet of Jesus. That's going to strengthen me and help me and encourage me as I can do the same for others. Are you living in community? Are you in a community group? That's one of the greatest ways you can experience community here. Pastor Isado, who gave our welcome, he leads our community group ministry across our six campuses. Five physical, one online. Are you living in community with others? Man, you're missing out if you're not. I want to encourage you to seek community. I want to encourage you to get involved in a community group. Talk to Pastor Isado. Talk to one of our pastors on staff. We'd love to tell you more about it. 
Man, when you walk out of your day, go to the info center. There's people, great servants at our info center, dream teamers. Let them know, hey, Pastor Lee was talking about community groups. Can I get some more information? They'll give you more information on community groups. And one of the greatest ways you can live in community is to serve alongside others. Our dream teamers, man. Our dream teamers are the heart and soul of, of our church. They're what make our church go across our five campuses. Who are our dream teamers? Our volunteers that serve. One of the greatest ways to live in community with somebody else is to be serving alongside them. You get to know each other as you serve together. Are you serving anywhere? Man, we got tons of ministries across our church that are designed for you to serve so that somebody might hear about Jesus. Get involved. I'm going to ask our altar ministers to come forward, our prayer warriors. Would you, would you make your way forward at this time? If you're thinking about getting involved here at BT Church, if you desire community, if you desire a place to serve, would you just come and let them know they want to pray for you, they want to pray with you as you seek your next steps. They want to help you grow in your faith. They want to pray for you. Maybe that's not why you want to come up today, but I want you to know as we worship to this next powerful song, this altar is going to be open. And maybe you've got a burden you've been carrying, and God doesn't want you carrying that burden anymore. He wants you to be at his feet, and he wants you to lay that burden at his feet, knowing that he's got enough power to take that burden. Amen? So if you've been carrying a burden all week, all month, all year, why don't you come to the altar and give it to God? Why don't you let one of these precious people know and they want to pray for you and that burden you've been carrying? Maybe you've been celebrating. Maybe it's never been better for you. Maybe God has blessed you beyond your ability to comprehend it. And you just can't say thank you enough to God. Why don't you come up to this altar and say thank you to God? They want to celebrate with you. They want to praise God with you. They want to thank God with you. Maybe you're ready to be baptized. Say, Pastor Louie, man, I've been seeing people getting baptized here pretty much every week. And I think my day's today. You know what? I've preached long enough. We can wait a little longer. We'll, we'll wait till you change and we'll baptize you today. We'll celebrate your baptism right now. Let them know. Let somebody at our info center know. But most importantly, maybe, just maybe, today is the day that Jesus is calling you. Say, Pastor, that's great, man. I great, I'm, I'm grateful you get all excited and everything. And, and I'm grateful you're about community and serving and all that good stuff. But man, I don't know if this stuff is real or not. I don't know if this even applies to me or not. I want you to know I'm this excited because I've never gotten over the fact that Jesus loved me enough to save me. And that's the same story that tons of people here have. But maybe today is your day. The day that Jesus is calling you to be his. The day that you recognize your need of him because of your sin and that you need his forgiveness and his grace that we talked about. He's one prayer away. One prayer of confessing him as Savior and Lord. I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me. Can we bow our head and go to the Lord in prayer? As we bow our heads, I just want to encourage you today, if that's you, you may be the only one in the room that this is for, and if so, that's enough. Today is the day of your salvation. Would you pray this prayer with me and mean it with all of your heart? Just say this, say, dear God, thank you that you love me and that you proved it by sending your son to die for me. Jesus, I need you because I'm a sinner and I need the forgiveness of my sins and that only happens through you because I believe that you died on the cross, that you shed your blood for the forgiveness of my sins and that you rose again three days later 
conquering sin, conquering death, and conquering the enemy, Satan, my enemy. And so I choose to believe, and I am yours. I surrender all to you. Come into my life and save me. Make me brand new. Guide my life from this day forward because I am yours. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for saving me. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.